ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this episode of the Drop It DFT. The four-year consideration series continues with Atlanta. (laughs) And today I get to talk to Christian Springer, who was the cinematographer for some of the uh, bottle episodes of this season of Atlanta. And Sir, I have so many questions. I'm not going to apologize because I feel like for most people, these are burning, insane issues, starting with how did you do the boat? Like that lake is absolute lore, obviously, in Atlanta and the intentionality of the series itself, but to hit so hard right off the rip. Were you actually on the lake? Because if you were, how did you get that camera? Were you knee deep in water? What happened? Tell me. You know, I think when we were, when we first read the scripts and when we started prepping um, for the season, um, we shot season three and four uh, continuously all as one big chunk of production. And so we sort of ended up actually shooting those episodes, the quote unquote bottle episodes we shot at the end of uh, season three and four, once we wrapped the cast out and then we had these non-cast episodes that we shot almost as as like a standalone production at the end. And so uh, at the very beginning, when we started talking about uh, this whole season three, season four um, concept and arc, uh, we knew that coming into this cold open after being off the air for four plus years, um, and also that we were going to be delivering the audience the first episode back with none of our original cast. We knew that it was going to be uh, quite a tall order to bring something to the table that was, you know, pretty uh, visually uh, stunning and, and felt like a, a large production value statement that we were making um, uh, as almost like a, an apology to the audience for the fact that we we're going to force them to watch uh, an episode without, without Darius in it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we knew uh, uh, from the get-go, we knew that that was going to be uh, a pretty tall order. So uh, we did, we shot that episode um, in October of 2021. We did uh, originally talk about like, well, wouldn't it be cool if we, shot this on uh, in a stage and we had like a, a a smarter, not harder approach to doing this and then cut to us at like four in the morning out uh, on techno cranes and boats. And we lit, uh, you know, like two miles of a, of a national forest and lit, uh, you know, had to get the department of transportation to let us uh light the bridge that you see in the background it was an enormous undertaking but yeah everything you see is like 100 percent practical um we uh we did it all real and it was uh yes there was lots of wet clothes and uh very cold nights uh filming those scenes but it's all done uh all in camera wow there are so many different skin tones sets, day, night, etc. Um, can you kind of talk me through the lighting considerations for this wide range of cast, but then also, especially in some of the environments from the foster home through to that forest? I mean, the, those are very, very, very different lighting scapes, obviously. Yeah, episode one, uh, 301 really runs the gamut of uh, every different circumstance you could ever find yourself in uh, from, you know, extremely dark skin tones to extremely pale skin tones, um, you know, characters in uh, very underexposed night lighting uh, to very bright exteriors. Um, And yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, I would say we have, have, spent you know several years uh with the same crew and the you know more or less the same technology that we've sort of um dialed things in we have an incredibly tight relationship with our um gaffer dit and colorist um and we it's a very very close collaboration between the four of us um as we sort of design and uh honed the the look of the show and and keep keeping track of all those sort of things 
and uh, our gaffer, Cody Jacobs, who's, who's gaffed um, the whole season or the whole series, um, you know, he's been there since the beginning with Hero and I, and he, I think he is uh, an incredible asset and, and incredible ally in, in the, the production value, in the lighting, in the aesthetic of the show. And you're, you're absolutely right. The, you know, the skin tones and the different looks of that show are just wildly all over the place. Um, and uh, yeah, that's something we pay very, very close attention to. Well, can you tell me, well, number one, what camera or cameras are you using? And then also, are you doing any color on set with your DIT or is it all saved for final? So we shoot on, uh, this season we shot on the uh, Alexa Mini LF camera and we did uh, various different resolutions, I guess you would say, in the camera. We shot some Super 35, we shot some full frame open gate that episode 301 is, is a full frame open gate episode um we almost kind of wanted to try to use that a little bit to a storytelling uh, point where <clears throat> we sort of viewed open gate as uh you know if you would if you would think of it as like an expanded um field of view or an expanded sensor size sort of everything feels a little larger than life and so we chose four episodes total between season three and season four that we shot open gate. Um, and in season four, we actually shot in some different aspect ratios as well. Um, and in terms of the onset color, yeah, our, our DIT is, um, it's incredible DIT uh, named Chris Hoyle, who's been on the show uh, since basically, um, I think episode two of season one. And <clears throat> he's, you know, very closely uh, responsible for designing the LUT. Uh, with myself and Ricky Goss as our colorist. And then on set, we actually do, he colors our dailies on set live. And then we render all of our dailies in-house instead of sending it out to a dailies post house. And so we have um, sort of a tremendous amount of control over the look as it's being built, as opposed to a CDL workflow where you're really just dealing with CDL values. Um, we're doing like a full... DaVinci Resolve grade on the dailies and that's getting processed live and then it's getting sent out through our post team and we're handling all the rendering. So it's a lot of extra heavy lifting um, that, you know, our team does and it's definitely not a workflow that I would recommend uh, to most productions, but it, uh, it, it affords us a great deal of control and uh, we have a lot more that we can do. And so he and I are constantly coloring um, scenes on set and it's you know it informs a ton of um, color temperature decisions lighting decisions and all having all that extra control is is pretty incredible so it, it is a lot of extra work but I've, in particularly you know it's part of the reason the land looks the way it does well on both the big payback and trinity to the bone there are driving sequences are those all practical or are you doing uh led plates or anything like that so <clears throat> Trini to the bone was all uh, LED plates and the practical scenes, uh, let's see, the driving scenes in Big Payback were practical. And, and um, uh, I'm trying to think in 301, three slaps, there's, it's a little mix of both. Um, mm -hmm. And actually previously before this season, season one and two, all of our driving has been done uh, LED plates. So, uh, yeah, we, we've been slowly, slowly dialing that workflow and we feel pretty comfortable with it now. Well, there was just that great shot in the big payback of him running after the car. Yeah. yeah. Shot, <laughs> oh my God. That was so good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Question for you, especially on, uh, that one, the big payback, because you have different environments that still felt so common, which, or not common, but like, you know, the similarity until we get to the hotel that he has checked into. So his office environment felt very similar to his home environment, to the coffee shop. And then it is until we watch him fall into the pool, I wasn't understanding why it felt so different. 
Um, but kind of talk me through that. Was that intentional or what were you kind of going for aesthetically to prepare us or just jar or jar us? You know, I think in the script, it was pretty clear that that's sort of the, the his low point in his story where he's just kind of uh, reached utter despair and he's almost like given up. And so, you know, as we were scouting, I think we ended up at a Best Western near the airport or something like that, which which felt pretty appropriate to the to the storyline. Um, but it was definitely not anything aesthetically uh, too pleasing from a cinematography standpoint. And so, you know, we we knew that uh, most of his episode needed to feel pretty mundane and not overly stylized, so that you know this this kind of boiling subject matter uh underneath his normal life uh kind of felt like it was coming out of nowhere and the hotel really was the point where we collectively sort of decided this was the time in which the script can kind of move into a much moodier um and sort of depressing uh aesthetic and i think the hotel you know we what we learned at the hotel was basically turning off as many lights as possible and really kind of trying to lean into this more noir um depression state uh and you know we 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 played around a lot with if you notice the scene where he checks into his room there's a lot of like him turning lights on or him playing with the television you know like all these light sources are just kind of like uh turning on and off and the idea was to basically just kind of, you know, it, I think for, narratively it was sort of like this dumb thing that you would do if you didn't know what to do until you started crying. But I think uh, visually it was also a way for us to just really play the mood up as much as possible and really, um, you know, connect the audience with how depressing the room felt. <laughs> I mean, um, there was so a yeah, lot. It was definitely, there was a lot of work put on those cookies though, because at the beginning with the Madeline and it's like a sneaky little super foo-foo Madeline being pulled out of his pocket that like, haha, I forgot that was in there to the depressing reality of how many days old cookie that he's pulling out of his pocket. <laughs> and it was just so interesting, even the choice between those two shots of him in the car and it's coming out from kind of nowhere to the over his shoulder reality of this hard stale cookie that he's looking down at. It was just that to me is a very intentional choice to show the story instead of vocalize the tour, the story. And that was so bravo, but also similarly going back to the three slaps, I mean, that foster home, and I don't know that I've actually talked about this on the drop before, but I was a foster kid. And so that I like that episode just slapped me three times because the details of even the the little boy up on the ladder and the paint and why are their houses always mid paint? I don't know, but it was <laughs> so real and so true. And then even the shot where it's at his level watching her dunk this this chicken leg into the flower and then into the microwave it's like <laughs> the chicken is not the point it's the fact that this is my experience that i have to are you serious like there were so many great choices especially feeling like i was at his level yeah yeah. That was yeah that was a big that was a big discussion that we had you know we always wanted to be experiencing this story from his perspective not not the adult's perspective and you know we obviously wanted to make sure that everyone understood it was his story but also i think viscerally you want to you want to be on the ride with him and you want to be going through all of those kind of horror moments from his perspective it makes it feel and i think also you know at the i think it's he's supposed to be 11 years old at you know age 11 like everything is going to feel elevated um and so you know we shot on much wider lenses than we normally normally shoot the show on we shot on a larger format sensor you know we we wanted that episode to feel elevated and again because it was the episode that we were coming back from you know a four-year hiatus it was very important to us that you know we sort of uh 
came in guns a blazing <laughs> back onto TV. So, um, yeah, we, 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 there was a lot of craft put into, and, you know, I think the writers also, uh, had a lot of time given the pandemic to sit there and come up with a lot of those sort of extra icing on the cake ideas of, you know, um, you know, details about the chicken or, uh, you know, I think there was, there was like the dog, the dog head, uh, was, I think a joke that had come up after revisions and revisions. And we all laughed about it a lot and we're like, well, we'll figure out how to do it. (laughs) I, okay. How do I convey this without sounding like the war shack that I feel like this episode was, but like, I need to know why the floorboard creaked because then I was waiting for grandpa corn pop to, to come out. And then I was like, it's grand pop. Is that why they called him corn pop? But then you're also focusing on this painting in the background. Do you understand what you did to us, sir? <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you're not allowed Happy to, to hear. Happy you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. All up for interpretation. It was so wonderful, but okay. And speaking of Warshacks here, question of one to four to seven. So episode one, we are at the 11 year old vantage point. Uh, The big payback, I feel like we're dead on and it's almost like a sense of equality, but then in, well, and sorry, backing up to three slaps every time that like the guidance counselor is there, I feel like I kept wondering why is she in heels and she's elevated. And of course <laughs> she's jumping in to play the white savior, but then the big payback, everything felt very parody. And again, maybe it's the war shack, but episode seven, by the time we get to Trini to the bone, I feel like, you know, she is always looming over. And every time I see Sebastian's parents, they're sitting or they're, uh, you know, kneeling down to his level. And I feel like she's looming large. Yes, I'm right. I see you shaking your head. Oh, I'm not <laughs> no, I, I think that's a, I think that's a very fair interpretation. You know, Donald, when we were prepping that, putting that episode together, Donald was saying that it was important that we feel like we're always uh, watching from a distance and so, you know, that episode is a lot of very long lenses, lots of, you know, shot through doorways and, you know, almost like, you know, there is this overarching sort of ghost uh, uh, haunted, uh, you know, theme throughout the season. And I think this episode is probably the most direct, you know, ghost story of, of all the episodes. Um depending on how you interpret the ending of, uh, of, uh, 301. But, uh, but yeah, I think that was absolutely intention there. You know, I think Donald had a very uh, strong idea of wanting to always kind of have this haunting perspective, whether it was from above or from far away or from another room. Um, that was definitely a, a major consideration. Well, honestly, by the time we got to the finale, uh, it was just so hurtful. Like, I didn't even realize, like, I immediately started rewatching the whole season. And I was like, why is this guy in this photo? Like, because you guys dropped weekly. And it's, I think so many of us are conditioned in that kind of like binge it later and watch the whole thing. Oh, that was so hurtful that I didn't remember as soon as I like saw his photo at the end. And then I came back to episode one and that was a mind blow. But then there he is again in the big payback. And then I realized his name is Earn. I, oh, you guys are are so hurtful. How how satisfying was that? And I, I guess I'm asking like, did you film all of his pieces together, that actor? And then the, even the, the colors is different clearly from being in a dark boat and then the reveal with the eyes and then going into uh, the hotel, did you guys set a specific look for him or was it more about the environments, the situation that he was in? Yeah, I don't, you know, we didn't want to like, we didn't want to tip the hat too much to, the fact that he was going to be reoccurring. We, 
you know, in some ways we wanted it to be this sort of Easter egg that people almost don't catch until, like you said, until at the very end of the season when you end on this extreme close-up of him. And, you know, I think I I read some comment online where someone was like, oh, I I went back and rewatched his monologue after the end of the season from 301 and realized that his monologue is essentially talking about what, you know, the whole season's theme is. Um, And so, you know, we loved the idea of tying that all together, but we didn't want to make any aesthetic decisions to tip that, that people were supposed to like pay attention to this guy. You know, he almost was supposed to just be this weird, uh, you know, background player that just happened to have a couple of lines that supported the story, you know, and the hope in, um, the hope in big payback was that you didn't remember that that was the same guy from, from I did. the boat. Good job. <laughs> I right. did not. Glad to hear. <laughs> Glad to hear. So there were, there were some exterior shots, obviously tying us back to Atlanta. Um, anything that, uh, I mean, I caught a few Easter eggs here and there, but like anything for the the thread, the throughput of all of these episodes coming together, obviously there's a hard dichotomy between the racial issues that we're dealing with in America versus the emanation from Europe and that kind of, let's put it all together here, but how much conversation happened between either you and Steven, the other cinematographer, you, I mean, there were two different production designers, America and Europe, like how much of that was discussed or were you guys kind of like, here's what we're doing and we want them to be separate. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> the conversation with Steven was, you know, we, we've sort of always talked about season one to season two, season two felt like a moodier, more refined version of season one and started getting a little spookier season three, at least for the, you know, our main character storyline, we sort of wanted to continue that, um, that sort of refinement into something that felt a little, um, you know, a little like we're maturing, I guess, uh, as filmmakers. And so, you know, the aesthetic wanted to, in season one, the aesthetic feels, uh, you know, I think in some ways a little adolescent or a little, messier, grungier season two, it starts to get, you know, we intentionally tried to um, uh, craft things down to be a little cleaner. And then season three, you know, I think automatically given the fact that Steven's episodes were going to be shot in Europe, I think there automatically was going to be, you know, this kind of elevated level of production value and the characters ultimately the characters are, you know, becoming wealthier, they're growing and they're getting older, they're becoming more successful, they're finding themselves in a lot, um, you know, more opulent locations, less, you know, grungy uh, strip clubs and more uh, high-end European hotels and and, uh, museums. And so I think uh, naturally the aesthetic is going to continue in that direction. And so Stephen, you know, the conversations we had with him was really, you know, we sort of explained the main dogmas of making the show and, you know, all, and our, our, our DIT actually was over there uh, in Europe to sort of maintain some of the aesthetic uh, and uh, original aesthetic intention, but we also didn't want to handcuff Steven. And so in some ways we sort of let him, we gave him, you know, our, our philosophy and sort of let him interpret that on his, you know, on his own as an artist himself. And then we knew that the season three standalone episodes, my, my four episodes, we knew that each one of those individually was going to have uh, it, their own unique aesthetic. And the way that we sort of viewed these conceptually was they were almost sort of like standalone films that if someone had never seen uh, an episode of Atlanta and they just so happened to turn it on, uh, they would feel more or less disconnected from each other. But obviously, um, Hero, Donald, and I did all four of those episodes together. And so I think there is the there is the consistency of us as filmmakers and our um, 
our voice and our our tastes in those four episodes regardless but we did actually try and and those episodes are all obviously shot in Atlanta so I think you're inherently going to have some of the original uh, aesthetic of the show in that um, just from the locations but we did try to sort of let those episodes be somewhat standalone and and not to talk about season four yet we'll do that on the next episode but uh season four you know the way that we sort of viewed that was that we've almost come full circle aesthetically and uh creatively such that you know we sort of are ending up back where we began but now in a you know much more refined much more intelligent wiser place you know that's kind of the i think that's sort of the four episode or the four season arc for the narrative of the show really is that you know we all kind of end up you know whatever returning home if you will uh back to our roots if you will um so so yeah i think you know uh, you certainly should you should talk to steven and get his opinion on it but um but yeah very much i think the idea was to you know give him sort of our ideas and, and share our ideas and then let him kind of fly with it that is so exciting. And I am so heartbroken that I have to end here so that we can go talk to Steven. <laughs> <laughs> but Christian, please, the second I am able to talk about season four, I would love to have you back. This was so much fun. I cannot thank you enough for making the time and joining us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. I'd love to come back. All right, Christian. Well, then I'm going to reach out immediately after this to schedule that. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you, Christian. All righty. Good luck and congratulations on a hell of a season. Those are amazing episodes. Well done. Oh, and Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've been roaming the streets since last night. I since twilight. This city is my Jesus. You're not worried about you know, what the streets think. The streets? <laughs> Bro, what the f- I think you need to live more in the moment. Are you sure you want this? Are you all right? Are you okay? What did you take? Man, he took some shit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Drop. You are in the middle of our... Uh, for your consideration season, focusing on some of our favorite shows today. We are back at it with my favorite show, Atlanta. And we have cinematographer Stephen Murphy joining us today, who tackled all of the Europe episodes. And I am so excited to dive in. Thank you for being here, Stephen. No problem. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's just go ahead and start with, um, I'm, I'm going to start with Amsterdam and every instance where everyone was high and in so many different environments and how in God's name, did you light everything from a dark club to an alleyway to a bright museum to, I, I just, those were remarkable shots. And may I say, I'm a little angry with you that you really did trick me. And I did not know that that was Paperboy until we were sitting down in that alleyway. Well done. <laughs> Very good. Good. Uh, I mean, Amsterdam was a lot of fun. Uh, we were particularly lucky when we were in Amsterdam because of COVID. And we were we were shooting there when it was still pretty much locked down. So we had access to it as a space that most people wouldn't normally get access to. And most productions wouldn't have had the access that we got uh, just because Amsterdam's a popular spot. Um, but we were really lucky. We got to go everywhere we wanted. Um, we had the the run of the city, you know, um, and it was great. They were, they were great to us. We had a really good time shooting over there and yeah, it worked out really well. So with the, if you can talk me through kind of shooting with Liam Neeson in that club and the very different, there's even, even different feelings inside of the club, you know, when it's getting dark and they want to bring Paperboy on stage, the quieter moment between him and Liam Neeson and just kind of the, the disjointed effect of 
you shot Lorraine in so many different ways. Sometimes it was face to face. Sometimes she's peeking out from a corner. Sometimes she's higher up. Like those choices immediately threw me off guard. And how did you begin to plan for that? Obviously, Amsterdam, drugs, etc. But just such a visual journey that you took us on. How did you kind of break that apart to capture it all? I mean, one of the things we talked about, myself and Hero, was the idea that are we, you know, how much do we focus on Lorraine? Because is she there? You know, is this, are it, I mean, a lot of the shots, it'll be about Paperboy and Lorraine is in the same shot, but we're not necessarily focused on her. And that sort of helps give you the idea that maybe she's real, maybe she's part of his imagination, maybe she's a part of his personality, you know, um, we sort of, in terms of the journey, we because we built that journey, it's not all shot in Amsterdam. Some of that's shot in London. So it was a very deliberate choice of how we constructed the journey based on the locations we knew we'd have access to or the locations we knew we wanted to use in Amsterdam versus the spaces that we would have to use in London. So, you know, the, the whole season is constructed out of, um, you know, it, pieces of Paris, pieces of Amsterdam, pieces of London, all doubling up or tripling up for different places. And um, Hero is very clever about, you know, constructing the the physical geography of what one trip might be or what one journey might be. Um, and he's got a, we've got a great production designer, Jonathan, and he worked with us as well to, you know, just carefully kind of connect the dots and make sure that if we turned a corner in London, we were in Amsterdam or, you know, we can make that all work in a kind of a seamless way. We, we did actually talk with Jonathan earlier, and I love that the both of you just keep giving each other credit. <laughs> Worked well there. Um, but let's dive right into Tarar because, uh, yep, yep, lots of nightmares on that one. <laughs> that was, uh, take me into first. I'm really obsessed with Van's apartment in Paris. The fact that it was, you know, I, I dug into that with Jonathan because it was already so well lived in and, you know, she's only been there a few weeks, but you really showed a sense of speed and urgency, which we'll talk to the editors, but even camera and movement with watching her do the scooter and, and, you know, how quick she was out of places, but going from that apartment onto the scooter and then eventually the subway and then through into the kitchen, it's just so fast. Like the, the intention there, how did you um, kind of pivot for those different locations, but keeping them all calm and knowing that that would be a sequence that they wanted to have together? Or did you, was that scripted? I mean, it's it's scripted in that, you know, Donald, who was directing that episode, you know, he knew he always wanted that sense of speed and he wanted her on the, you know, on the move constantly uh, in, until she's not and until she's sort of forced to confront her situation and the reality of her situation. So we sort of knew we had that kind of journey through Paris, the sort of that, you know, that the Amelie version of that journey through Paris. And by keeping that energy up it helped you know helps her journey it, it also helps the cast you know you can keep the we the way i try and work or i worked on atlanta was to you try and keep the physical spaces relatively free of the kind of um accoutrement of filmmaking so i'm trying to keep all the lights outside the window so they're hidden from the cast which means if we want to turn around quite quickly with a camera we we can do or we can give them the space to use, you know, uh, a little better than maybe if you're on a soundstage doing something a little more constructive. So it uh, it just helps with that flow and it helps, you know, helps with the energy. So it, it was thought about, it was the intent, you know, to sort of present the story that way. Um, and we just did our best to make it work. Well, so you are responsible for such a journey with Van and when we first see her in the the Sinter class episode, you know, obviously it's open. She just landed. 
We don't really know why is she there for earn? Like, how did this happen? And her space just kind of keeps not just getting smaller, but the light actually stays with her until that very end. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even when we're underground in the kitchen, we don't see her go up to the nighttime dinner scene. How much of that was intentional discussed, like keeping her lit until the very end and also just kind of going from this wide airport smaller and smaller on her. It's it's discussed in a way, but it's not sort of probably as overly designed may, or or consciously designed, maybe as you might think. I mean, certainly in terms of the lice, you know, that's that's a sort of a subconscious reaction that I'm having to the material, to the performance that you see on the rehearsal on the day to you know ideas that maybe have happened in the scene beforehand that you're sort of then tracking through the subsequent scenes you know it's and it's usually it's a sort of the same response that I'd have to any performance it's it's me sort of reacting in a very you know instinctual maybe way is the way to put it um rather than trying to sort of specifically design an arc you know in prep that I'm with life that I have to have happen i'm sort of responding to the ideas on a gut level um which means then that as the you can respond on a daily level to the performance that happens on the spot or the performance you think might happen you know ends up being something slightly different so i'm not locked into a very particular pre-planned arc i'm just able to react and respond to the story that's really happening to us rather than the story you think is going to happen um, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And it's actually kind of a segue into something I, I had wanted to ask, but also know that I'll probably need to ask the editors this as well. But you had a chance to give each character an episode, really. Um, you know, we have Darius with new or with white fashion and the Joloff and going on his journey. Um, really Paperboy has uh new jazz and Lorraine. And then of course you have Van and Tarar, but we've gotten to know them over three seasons or, you know, the two prior seasons, but this was the first time that it was, it really felt about them and the many layers of them stepping into what their life is now. So it's not just Atlanta and who they were, but this kind of discovery of who they're becoming and have become. And so were you looking at each of those episodes as kind of the character journey and, and the tone for each episode, not a bottle episode, obviously, but they each really did have their own chance to emerge. Yeah. I I was probably looking at the episodes more, in a plot sense rather than anything specifically character orientated with the exception of, of, of Tarar and how I knew that was going to end, you know, cause it's such a strong, strong ending specifically for Van, you know, um, the way the, the initial discussions with Hero and Donald about the episodes and how we were going to treat each episode was more a discussion around around each script which is then informed as you start to find each location and as you bring in each location and you kind of sort of start then seeing the tapestry of the of the of each episode then that sort of informs the conversation a little further and you know there are you have ideas i have ideas hero has ideas donald has ideas but they're slowly refining the ideas as we begin to see the pieces beginning to slot together rather than anything sort of like, you know, overly prescriptive, you know, at the beginning, you know, there's no sort of, it has to be this, 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 and this. It's more of, you know, natural evolution of, you know, we think it's this and this would be nice. And, you know, oh, now we found we've cast this person here that kind of changes the flavor of things. And then, oh, maybe we can respond this way. So it is, it is a kind of an evolving conversation that happens through prep, you know, especially as, as tangible assets start to fall into place and you begin to go, oh, right, okay, this is what 
the River Seine looks like at nighttime with the Eiffel Tower. Oh, this is how it's going to be. Great. You know what? I think we should do it this way now. You know, there's a that it's it's very much a a kind of a, an idea that you're scratching at to begin with that you slowly start to respond to through each part of the production. Specifically with Torah, there were, I mean, forgive me if I'm just putting my own tastes and interests on top of it, but it's like, you know, you mentioned Amelie, of course, that was an obvious one, but, you know, even with the trunk shot, very Scorsese or Tarantino. And then of course, it's almost like with the baguette, she's pulling her Hattori Hanzo out of the bag. And even um, when they're about to walk into the museum, and I love that there's a Paperboy poster in the background there, but like, it felt very cinematic. It felt incredibly influenced by so many great shots and scenes. Was that kind of what you were trying to, to bring forward? Yeah, I mean, Donald was really excited to do that episode and we did it last. So you, you know, it meant we had a little bit longer to, talk about it, you know, because you get to have a snippet of a conversation every now and then with him during the shoot of the other episodes about ideas, you know, especially as we start seeing location photographs and things coming towards us. Um, but, you know, Donald had a lot of ideas about how he, he really wanted to see certain things in certain scenes. And he was super excited about the baguette scene. He had, you know, he had was really excited about the cooking of the hand scene you know, um, and uh, which eventually became, we started to call the food porn scene because it was, because the stuff was going to look so good and it does look so tasty. It's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> but, you know, so so there, there was, there was always, he always had ideas for, you know, how he wanted to see the, the process of the hands getting made and stuff like that. You know, so you try and do your best and incorporate all of that, you know, um, into this, into the structure of the episode to make it sit together and feel kind of quite seamless. And, um, but it is, it is, uh, you know, a little bit of a love letter to, you know, 60s French cinema too, you know, um, it, which is great. And it's a little bit of horror too, which is also great. Yeah. I mean, there was even um, the shot of Shanice. How did you get that? Like, practical it feels like because you see the Eiffel Tower but you also see her you see the glass you hear the music I was like this feels very Soderbergh in the Bellagio in Ocean's Eleven right. but like right. there's so much happening here how did you get that I mean that that was you know that was I'm going to say that was almost one of the last things we shot actually in in Paris uh towards the end of our shoot but uh that I mean that's real that's we did that for real we had Again, we because because Paris was still in a relative state of lockdown, we had fantastic access to fantastic locations, and um, that's a real locations. And uh, you know, we we just prepped it pretty well. Uh, it was sort of slightly tricky trying to get the balance of the lights correct so that we could see the Eiffel Tower, which happened to have a full moon, and as well, I think that night. And um, and then you know, get the light on her face. Um, she has amazing skin. She's got like almost silver skin. And then the glass, it's like triple glazed glass. So it's slightly distorted. So that kind of distorts the reflection a little bit, makes it a little bit impressionistic. Um, but we basically just did it, you know, real for real. We, you know, it's, um, and it's kind of the most Parisian view that we have in that episode. So there was a kind of conversation with, Donald as well about not, you know, we weren't going to Paris to sort of show the picture postcard version of Paris. We were going to Paris to tell the story and sort of see Paris the way locals see it. So the, you know, the Eiffel Tower is is there when Van is having her big scene, but it's only partially seen. You can see the leg of it. It's kind of reflected in the water a little bit, but it's not like we're going, hey, look, it's the Eiffel Tower. So it was nice to save that moment for that little button scene, which I thought was great. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead into the kitchen because that breakdown when Van just finally comes forward, there's there's a lot in my head about that so far as how much coverage, how many cameras, how cramped were you and were there any camera tricks as we're watching her come forward like how did that breakdown happen? 
I mean, it's kind of a so there's a combination of a few things going on in that space. So it's, it's again, it's a real space. It's not a, it's not a studio, um, and it's so it's really cramped, and it's Paris, so it's it's very cramped. It's like you know, um, it, maybe maybe no bigger than a New York restaurant kitchen type of thing, you know, um, and it's a real working kitchen with real, you know, hot cookers and stuff like that. Um, so we went and we knew that was going to happen down there. Donald was really keen to. Tr- try and shoot that in a sort of pseudo documentary way so that it, it Zazie could just let go. And, and, you know, we talked to Jonathan about having breakables and what things could be thrown around and to kind of give her the space to just whatever was going to happen could happen. And we'd capture it, um, which is a really nice way of doing it cinematically because it's a complete departure from the kind of choreography of what we do with everything else where the camera is usually very, controlled and it's on steadicam or it's you know static shots and you know very careful compositions it, it was really nice to just be able to go okay we'll set the area and let's see what happens so to sort of flip that then we knew when we were doing the cooking sequence and the food porn sequence that in order to shoot all those lovely little detailed stuff before the van breaks down happens it requires a huge amount of light so that you can use special lenses so you can get all the texture and detail of the food so we basically went in there with the lighting crew and tore all the ceiling out and rigged the ceiling in a particular way that i could have you know all the light i wanted it was all controlled and shaped the way i wanted and at the flick of a switch we could go from the mode we needed for all the food porn to the documentary mode it still looked exactly the same to the camera but it meant then we could choose super detailed depth of field shots for the food or you know very shallow handhelds pseudo documentary shots for van's performance Zazie's performance um and when we set it up we just literally did that we had two cameras in there we, we had probably two boom swingers a couple of focus fillers for the cameras the place was as you know as stripped down as possible in terms of the crew and it was still a really tight space um and then we just let them at it and um what happened really happened and it was great it was really really nice we did it maybe well, twice that was it. All the coverage we needed. That was it. Yeah, twice, maybe three times the most. What what cameras did you use for this season? Um, so we were Alexa Minis for the European episodes. Um, I think Christian shot Alexa Mini LF for the for yeah. the ones in Atlanta. So we were regular yeah. Alexa Minis and Panavision Primos. And I have a series of uh, filters that I've had built over the years, which are like a contrast adjusting adjusting filters they lower the contrast and they add a sort of a slightly smoky texture to the image which kind of brings the digital image a little closer to what a sort of softer 35 mil image would feel like um and that works really well then in conjunction with the way it's graded with the grade adds a lot of contrast back into the image and that helps us get that kind of a 35 mil quality you know um uh, finished print look that we're going for uh, so yeah, Alexa Minis and uh, Primo Primes, Panavision Primos, um, and yeah, we shot. God, I'd say we shot most of the show sort of very traditionally on Steadicams or um, Dolly, and then we say we did a little bit of handheld work, but most of it we saved the handheld work for that one sequence in um, in Paris for Van. Two quick questions though, because the old man in the tree, for example so well done but it felt it felt like one location even though i know there were several mm-hmm. you know especially and also trying to capture the fact that there's a, a restaurant in this house a de- a decoy entry a tree in the middle of it how did you how did you go into making that feel and look like one unit so i mean it's almost one unit it's almost actually one house um there's obviously the decoy house is one location and then when they are you know they go through the decoy house and they go through the door at the top of the stairs and they step into the the, you know the the mansion house that is a different location but pretty much that location had almost everything we needed Obviously, Jonathan built a tree and he built Nando's inside the space. But what we ended up doing was we, you know, I had joined the production 
I guess a couple of weeks after Jonathan had, and they had been looking for that location, you know, um, quite hard because that was very soon in our schedule. They f- couldn't quite find what they wanted, and uh, they had seen that location beforehand. And so a couple of weeks of prep went by, and we were still struggling to find. We were looking at all these incredibly rich houses in London, couldn't quite find the right fit. And they kept talking about this one location that they had seen that I hadn't and said, uh, look, we might just show it to you anyway. Let's go and have a look at it. And uh, I took a look at it. And I was like, oh, this is great. And they kind of looked at me and went, well, how do you mean? Said, this is great. We're just looking at it the wrong way. We shouldn't be looking at it like this is the front door and the house goes you know, wide left to right. We should clock it all 90 degrees and pretend that they come through this way and think of it as a long house with layers on top. And here when Jonathan kind of went, oh, okay, actually. And they looked at it and then suddenly everyone started going, okay, this will work. If we do this, that's great. We just needed to look at it in a slightly different way. Um, then Jonathan did his magic. He, you know, put the fake doors in, put the seam between the two locations, put the tree in, put Nando's in, you know, the swimming pool is really there. The swimming pool is really funky because it actually turns into a dance floor, believe it or not. And we, <laughs> we, could, we couldn't incorporate that into the show, but that happens for real. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, you know, a little bit of VFX work for reflections and it works. Well, speaking of things that, you know, maybe didn't make it into the show, cancer attack, poor Darius, who like, P.S., I don't always dress like this. I was trying to give my best Darius effort here. Um, but like him and that map and cancer attack, I kept waiting. I was like, tell me you guys have like B-roll of them at least on a hunt somewhere, like checking that place out. That's that's the spinoff series. That's the first episode of the spinoff series, right? I love it. Um, and okay, you got to tell me how in the world were you lighting blackface for that concert? And, you know, it pops up throughout like. Genius, right? Various, one of them is, you know, obviously when they're looking out from behind the curtain and it's all dark and then you have the baby and the poker <laughs> was like how how much discussion went into that or how you could light that? Uh, I mean, the, the the main point of discussion was the sort of point of view shot, the guys behind the stage looking at the stage uh, or looking at what they're seeing on the other side of the stage. Um, and again, Hero had that idea of, of the sort of the throbbing light, the sort of pulsing light. And so that was kind of always a kind of a thing that he'd seen in his head beforehand. Um, and then it just became a kind of a technical conversation because we couldn't do the point of view in the real location because of a COVID thing. We had to do the point of view in one country and the other part of the shot in another country. Um, but um, but when we did do it, it was quite surreal. It was, you know, when we, when we had everyone out there and they're all on blackface and they're all sitting around. And, and actually the bit that they used was the bit with the guys who were looking bored. So it was sort of slightly between, we were just, we were just quietly rolling the camera and everyone kind of got bored and waiting to be told what to do. And, and it looks great. <laughs> Honestly, sir, this was such a journey that you took us on. And I'm so grateful that you, you came and spent a little bit of that time unpacking it with us. So thank you so incredibly much and job well done. Thank you very, very well much. done. Thank you very much.